Chronic pain affects more than 50 million adults in the U.S. and costs the nation up to $635 billion annually. Chronic pain is associated with reduced quality of life, increased medical expenditures, and significant economic cost. Chronic pain is among the most common chronic conditions in the U.S. Pain is always a personal experience that is influenced to varying degrees by biological, psychological, and social factors. Dr. Cross explains that pain is 100% in the body and the brain at the same time. We will break down the emotional connection to the physical connection of pain. Our guest expert is Dr. Tawny Cross, pain and wellness coaching of Cross-Centered Care. Dr. Cross is a doctor of physical therapy and a pain specialist. She has nearly a decade of experience at a veterans hospital in North Carolina, working with patients that have some of the most complex chronic pain cases. Dr. Cross believes passionately in our brain and body's innate ability to heal. She is so excited to be able to share her knowledge with you now as a pain and wellness coach. This episode will provide you with a better understanding of the connection between physical and emotional pain, learn best practices to help support the body, and that by the end of our discussion, you will see the connection between your body and thoughts manifesting from chronic pain. You are listening to Julie Walls. Without further ado, welcome Dr. Cross. How are you? I'm well, thank you. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Where are you located? Um, so as you mentioned, I'm in North Carolina. I am at the Durham area of North Carolina. Um, so we call it RDU. And um, yeah, been here for, gosh, since 2010. Oh, wow. That's, that's quite a few years. <laughs> yes. That's well, So wait, were, were you originally from that area? No, I'm from California originally. Are you? Well, that's quite a ways away, Yes, yes. <laughs> but still kind of similar climates, which I wish I was in California or the Carolinas right now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We're nonstop dreary, cloudy grossness, which I'm over oh. it. So yeah, I need to get out of this, this area for just a smidge. <laughs> All right. So Dr. Cross, give us a little bit of personal insight into your personal life. Do you have family members, pets, children? Yes. So my husband and I are parents to two little ones. Um, We tend to love playing board games and hiking together. And as is my trade, I'm a firm believer in movement and exercise. So I really do take the time to, to take advantage of any time I have to be able to nourish that belief. Yeah. Yeah. I want to move. <laughs> I'm always feeling like it's just kind of like innately in my body. Like I just got to move and, and, you know, you are in a perfect spot to be able to like explore and have fun. There's some amazing little places to visit and hiking. Same yes. with us. We live in the upper part of Montana. So yeah, it's, it's really nice. You and I are pretty active people, which is awesome. Yeah. I've seen a few pictures with us. I see a lot of your movement. Uh, yeah. 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 We're, we're always on the move here. All right. So let's get started and dive deeper in the topic we are discussing today, which is chronic pain. Have you or anyone that you know experienced like a chronic pain issue and um, on a personal level? And how did this experience impact your perception of pain? Yeah. So um, I do want to put a disclaimer on here, though, that anything that I say today 
um, is just used for information. And, and I don't want to make, I want to make sure that nobody misconstrues my, my information as medical advice or personal recommendations. Um, and yes, so I actually know a handful of people, at least even just in my family circle that have chronic pain. For example, my mom was one um, and my husband was another. I will start with my husband because I think his story with pain actually fed into my earlier realization that there was something going on that most people didn't see. Um, and I also do try to make it a general rule that I'm not trying to be my therapist for my family members because that's you. generally a recipe for frustration. But um, but he and I actually explored a lot of different exercises early on for different types of um, different areas of his body. Um, we looked, looked into posture information. We looked into um, like, gosh, different movement styles and nothing changed for his pain until he started gleaning from and implementing a lot of the pieces of what I was um, teaching and learning about pain later on in my practice, which is a big part of what I do now. So his story definitely fed into my perception and um, that that pain itself is not a purely physical and mechanical perspective. Um, and if you focus it on that way, it's oftentimes very, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, very poor at helping you actually address your pain. Yeah. My mom though, my mom's journey isn't very interesting one. She, she actually doesn't have chronic pain anymore. And it had nothing to do with me because she got better before I even became right. a physical therapist. Um, she was actually injured in a really bad car accident when I was a kid. I was probably about seven. So her car rammed into a concrete wall and she was in the hospital for a few days. And I just remember that when she came home, there was just bruising everywhere in her face and she could only drink out of a straw. She couldn't move very well. Um, and so Dr. I'm Dr. Cross, how old were you when that happened? I think I, I was seven. You seven. were seven. Wow. Yeah. That's traumatic. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was big. I mean, it was at the time I didn't really understand very much. In fact, I thought it was kind of fun that she was drinking out of a straw. Yeah, of course. Um, <laughs> but if my calculations are correct, she probably had pain for nearly 20 years after that accident. Oh, wow. Um, it was definitely present when I was in high school, um, and my college years, because I, um, I think she, she had me massage her a lot. She's like, when it got really badly, she's like, can you, did you stop here and just really work on this area here? And so the funny part about her healing was that it actually came about very naturally on its own when she became a certified nursing assistant, um, which happens to be a very manual job. And she just, she, one day I asked her, Hey, you haven't, you haven't had me massage in a while. She's like, you know what? Ever since I started working, I've been moving and walking more and my back pain just went away. So for her is a very rare, I think, example that shows one, um, that sometimes just the power of movement um, is, is enough to help your system start to be able to settle. And um, there are actually varying types and uh, complexities into chronic pain. So um, in order to heal, I like people to know which category they might fall into. It might just be something that can be movement addressed. Um, you just have to get over some of the, the hooks of um, the humps of thinking that that pain means something's wrong right. in the beginning. Right. But for, for most people, I would say it happens to be a much more complex. Oh yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much for sharing on your two personal experiences, which I mean, those are right to the heart, your husband and your mom. Yes. <laughs> and you know, I just want to say, um, as a seven, eight-year-old witnessing somebody deal with chronic pain, 
for yourself that had to have been heartbreaking to watch, you know, and we often forget the secondary tertiary traumas that are involved when somebody is sick or somebody Mm -hmm. has a chronic illness or chronic pain. So that's really interesting. I would like to dive deeper into that, maybe on another call or something like that. I would, I would love to get your experience with that. All right. So thank you again. I really appreciate it. I would like to share some statistical data and information on types of chronic pain and the financial impact, which I thought as I was preparing for this interview, I thought was really, really mind blowing. So um, I'm just going to start with one point at a time. And then if you can just give me your feedback, I I really appreciate that. So um, number one, chronic pain is the number one cause of adult disability in the US. Wow. Yes. Yeah. So it's not at all surprising. I think the number is something like one in five people. Um, And I think it speaks to several different factors. And the most important part is um, one, I think that there's a stigma and complication from it being an invisible illness. And two, it in the past has been very poorly misunderstood. And as a result, it's been very difficult to treat from a very conventional medical perspective. Um, so it there's just a, a whole little number of things that makes it so that it becomes this this much, much bigger animal and problem to treat. Yeah. I I I know for myself and for those folks that have tried to seek this the the holy grail or solution for chronic pain, I mean it becomes a very um complicated road road to go down often, you know, going in different directions. So that's, you hit the nail on the head with that. Okay. So the second statistic, statistical information that I found was lower back problems, arthritis, cancer, repetitive stress injuries, shingles, headaches, and fibromyalgia are the most common sources of chronic pain. Yeah. So fibromyalgia is probably the best example of what I would say is poorly misunderstood. Yeah. Um, when medical providers in the past couldn't explain the pain after doing all the lab work and the x-rays and the MRIs, then it was kind of that go-to diagnosis. They're like, okay, we ruled everything out else out. So that means you've got fibromyalgia. So there was no clear treatment protocol, um, especially even when I first started working um, as a new PT. Um, lower back problems, I'd say about 90% of all patients with low back pain will have what they call non-specific low back pain, which basically means that um, there's no strong affiliated physical cause, which would include things like fractures or herniated discs. Um, RSD, which is reflex sympathy dystrophy, which is now known as complex regional pain syndrome. Yeah. Explain that. (laughs) What is that? (laughs) Yeah. It's a, it's a crazy fun word to say that your nerves will suddenly pick one limb and it will start to cause inflammation, swelling, your skin will change into like this orangey color and they can't explain it. They can't explain what is causing it. There's no identifiable physical cause. Um, It can often happen with trauma um, after surgeries and things of that nature. Um, But if you can kind of see what the trend is what we're describing is that if you do some of a a, a dive into some of this, this type of like most common back pain, fibromyalgia, you'll find that there's actually a surprisingly small percentage of these cases where you can find a direct physical really? cause. Really? Really? That's mm-hmm. interesting. I kind of thought of that myself um, when I had, you know, friends and family members dealing with fibromyalgia and 
I kept thinking, did they get in a car accident? There was there some sort of weird infection or, um, you know, trauma related mechanical trauma. And it just seems like it was an onset that just kind of just started happening. And I know we're going to dive deeper into that, but, um, a lot of it was either, you know, somebody lost a family member or, um, they had a divorce or there was some sort of emotional stress involved. And next thing, you know, it just starts, my shoulders are achy and then it moves into like different parts of the limbs. That's really fascinating. And I know we're going to go, we're going to dive deeper into that component as well. So thank you for that. Yeah. Um, part C. So we're going to go on to the, to the next interesting fact, 70 to 85% of adults in the U S have back pain at some point in their life. And we're not invincible people. <laughs> we're not going to escape this life without some form of ache or pain, right? That's what I tell a lot of my, my, uh, my friends and family members, Arthritis pain affects 40 million Americans. That's that's substantial. As many as 45 million Americans suffer from chronic, chronic or reoccurrent headaches. Um, and I'm going to put the site referencing in the description of this episode. So can you further expound on that? Yeah. So kind of like what you brought up, this statistic is a really, really good thing to bring up because it points to the fact that it doesn't matter who you are. We are not invincible. Life experiences aside, whether you're a really risk-taking athlete to a veteran, to someone who um, is just sitting at your desk all day, it doesn't really matter. You're likely to experience back pain at some point. And also important to notice, though, that not all of those people that experience back pain develop chronic pain. Um, there was this one very interesting thing um, we noticed in research that um, there was actually an increased prevalence of persistent back pain um, after diagnostic imaging, things like MRIs and x-rays started to become more widely used to diagnose pain. And the other factor that I would say plays into to persistent pain is that the language a medical provider uses heavily impacts whether or not patients will have good recovery and again, persistence and pain. Really? Inter can you, mm -hmm. can, can you kind of break that down a little bit? That's, that's an interesting point. Yeah. So um, for example, there, there was several studies that were done where people were given their x-ray or MRI information. Now, if you've ever seen the impression of an x-ray and MRI, it can sound super duper scary. It can sound oh, yeah. like you've got degenerative disc disease, you've got stenosis right. and you've got tears. And if you present the same information to someone in a non-threatening way, like, okay, hey, you've got some narrowing in the spine um, and you've got a little bit of a pull on this muscle, they do far better than the ones that are told this like scary, hairy information of what their bodies look like on the inside. Wow. Yeah, that yeah. is really fascinating. Absolutely. That would, yeah, because if I go to the doctor and I hear something that sounds like it's life-threatening, even yeah. though it's not. Um, I remember one time, um, I know this is completely off track, but I had, uh, I fell down and I, I had, I just thought it was a deep bruise. I remember the doctor saying, you have a hematoma. And I thought, <laughs> what the heck is that? You know, and immediately yeah. my blood pressure spiked and, but yeah, the, the verbiage is huge. So you made a really good point on that. Yeah. yeah. Thank you so much. Yeah. I think You're that's welcome. super important. I hope somebody that's listening in is like, yeah, that makes a huge difference when how the doctor speaks to me, which is, is critical. Yes. absolutely. <laughs> awesome. Okay. So one study found that people with severe pain spent 
$7,726 more on annual healthcare expenditures than people with no pain, which breaks down to an additional 644 per month. That is mind-blowing. <laughs> it's a lot of money. It's a lot of money. So now you, you're in pain and then you're in debt. It's yes. The financial burden is insane. Can you further explain a little bit more on that? Yeah. It, so it kind of goes back to what you brought up in the first place, which is that chronic pain is a number one disability, right? Um, and that it's very poorly treated. Now, when you have people with severe pain, not only are they desperate for relief and they spend more, you know, like nearly $8,000 a year, that same article I think you're quoting from notes that 70, 74% of people with high impact chronic pain are currently unemployed. Wow. Yeah. So, and I, I would say the data also shows that chronic pain tends to be more prevalent with those who have poor socioeconomic statuses, meaning adults living in poverty, have lower education, living in rural environments. So you essentially have this problem where you have a lot of people that need the care, but don't have the ability to pay for it. Yeah. Yeah. That's crazy. I, you know, I know that socioeconomical piece to it is so huge. And when I, when I read this, I thought there's no way this is, this is insane to me. Why are we not, I mean, why isn't there additional help, financial help with this? I mean, it's a real financial burden. It's a real financial burden. And for some people, like you said, symptoms or um, types of disorders that they don't even know it comes out of left field. They don't have a clue. It's not impacted by some car accident. Right. Mm -hmm. So, um, it, it just, it kind of blew my mind a bit. So thank you for further expanding on that. If you like what you're listening to, please hit the subscribe button now. Let's break down the statistical data and information on the emotional impact of chronic pain. Mm -hmm. And I want to hear your thoughts and response to each point. So let's start off with um, people with chronic pain are at least twice the risk of suicide. Yeah. So I actually just came back from a pain training last week where we talked about this statistic and um, helping people even wean off of opioids. Um, so there's a few things that pop up. The first one is that already people with chronic pain usually have a mental health condition like depression or anxiety. Um, and I think that was also pointed out in the article you brought up that people are four times more likely to have depression or anxiety compared to those who are pain-free. Um, so there's that dangerous combination you have um, of the condition and that the conditions combine the physical pain and the mental health stuff that elevates the recipe recipe for suicidal ideation. Yeah. Um, the second thing that pops up is just how intense the pain experience must be for some of these folks. Like you have people come in and they'll say stuff like it's just off the charts, 10 plus pain. Um, in, in the veterans hospital, I work at at least a couple of times a month. I would hear someone comment in my clinic this pain is so bad. I sometimes wish I could just cut off and, you know, whatever body part they have. And I mean, to, to, to con consider trying to like cut something off just really, I think points to how deeply hurt these people, um, are, are, and then, um, it's not surprising that it's at least double. Um, yeah. yeah. And I think the other thing too, especially thinking about like people, wanting to cut body parts off for pain is this sense of hopelessness. Um, a lot of medical provi providers I work with, as well as others, like I said earlier, they don't 
realize the language impacts those with chronic pain. So not only are they getting these hairy, scary MRIs, you have lots of people assuming that their pain is forever because doctors will say stuff like this is your life now. You're going to have to live with this. Um, I think someone else I heard one time say that chronic meant to them that just they're just one step away from a wheelchair. Absolutely. And if you think that, then it's I, I'm, I'm imagining that you're you're thinking to yourself, what kind of life is this to just exist, right? Yeah. Yeah. So um, yeah. if I had to say like the antidote to suicide is that people need to be growing and living for something. Um, and you mentioned earlier, like that chronic pain is associated with a reduced quality of life. So you're going in the opposite direction. I think it, it just, it speaks to that gap and why there is such a high risk for suicide. You know, I came from the chronic illness world and I actually despise that term, to be honest with you. Um, I always felt like when somebody said something was chronic and like, you just mentioned that it was life, I I was going to have this illness. I'm going to be ill forever, right? Mm -hmm. There's no hope. It's going to be chronic. I I often have had these conversations with experts, practitioners, doctors like yourself. What can we change it to? I mean, we need to change, just like you said, words are impactful and when you when you label something or someone with chronic it means they're doomed this is what right. becomes their identity i am chronic illness i am chronically becoming i'm going to be pain filled with pain for the rest of my life it it does yeah. you take on this identity and it just mentally is destructive absolutely yeah and i you know i don't know maybe we can have another dialogue off the side but it would be something to explore on how to teach, you know, doctors. And you are doing that. I, I've seen some of your lives. You guys follow her on Instagram. Um, and she does a lot of work with the changing the language and empowering her patients. And I think that's so important, especially if you're in the throes of illness or pain that's lasting longer than you wish it would, right? We need to change the wording. It's, it's so impactful. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. (laughs) All right. So let's go to the next, uh, the next point in in regards to emotional pain attached to physical pain. People with chronic pain are also four times more likely to have depression or anxiety. I know we're kind of redundant here and I know you've answered that, but let's dive deeper into that. People with chronic pain are also four times more likely to have depression or anxiety than those who are pain-free. I did want to ask you a quick question. You said you went to, um, to a recent conference, do you find that, sorry, just a sec. So with, I apologize. So with that, do you see that they may have had anxiety, depression before they started becoming symptomatic with pain? And then did their depression, anxiety increase post starting to, you know, develop more severe pain. Can you kind of break that down a little bit for me? Yeah. So I think, I think this might come up a little bit later too. Um, but I, I see both. I honestly, people will tell me a lot about how their depression, their anxiety, um, started coming about after they had pain or they got worse. But usually when you do a little bit of digging, it is very rare to find someone who didn't have a mental health condition of some sort, or even if it wasn't like, it wasn't like diagnosed, um, you'll tell them, they'll kind of talk about their stress that they had before um, they ever had their chronic pain actually occur. Got you. Okay. Yeah. 
Yeah. Cause I was wondering, um, you know, I found from my own, my own health journey that, um, for example, headaches, I knew that there was a stress component related to it because, you know, I'm always kind of like, I call it a delayed responder. So, um, I would often get, you know, nervous or anxious for something that was going on. And then two days later develop debilitating migraines. And I'm assuming you probably see that often in your practice. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then once I did develop the migraine or the headache, I mean, my anxiety would go through the roof. (laughs) So it was almost this perpetuating cycling of, uh, stress and pain, stress, and then pain. And I couldn't get off that wheel. I mean, that bandwagon, it it just kind of was leading down a really terrible road. So, um, yeah, that's, that's really interesting. Approximately one half to two third of all patients diagnosed with chronic pain manifest to various levels of psychological distress, often Mm -hmm. disregarding, uh, psychological distress leading up to the onset of pain. So I, I, absolutely have asked the question before we got to it. So can you just kind of give a little bit more detail on that? Yeah. So, um, I would say for me, like just kind of what you brought up, the question to become very curious about is what exactly the connection is between the psychological stress leading up to the onset of pain has to do with the pain itself. Um, we know more and more so with the research that there's a very strong connection with psycho-emotional factors and chronic pain. This can be seen on fMRIs, on brain imaging. So I like to tell people that if a doctor wanted to know if you were truly in pain, they let's say you had a knee pain, they cannot actually image your x-ray or MRI to be able to tell you whether or not you're in pain. Like if you have a meniscus tear and somebody else has a meniscus tear, the doctor wouldn't know which one actually was painful. Really? Yep. The only way they, they, I mean, you might have the same type of tear. The only way they could actually tell is by doing an image study of your brain to know how the brain is producing pain or processing that. So um, when I, when we talk about um, the pain is in the brain, that's often nowadays what the joke is or what we mean is that it is literally, you can only see that in the brain. Um, You can do imaging on that. I, I, that's new to me. That's interesting. So it's functional MRIs. Okay. Um, and I don't, th- it's not done. Like, like if you're diagnosing pain, nobody, nobody will ever go to like the image study. Like, okay, let's, let's, let's see like where, where your, what areas in your brain are activated. Um, but yes, you can do a functional MRI of the brain to be able to tell um, what areas are being activated by that pain process. Does it look at intensity? I'm curious about this. It's interesting. Does it, can it look versus one person, like you said, that has a meniscus tear, right? Versus the other person, does their brain have pain receptors that can look at, you know, how intense it is? Can that image imaging show that? So yes, I would say there's probably more like energy signatures that will speak to the amount of activation that is occurring. Um, and it also depends, um, and maybe this will come up later on when we talk, um, it also depends on if you have an acute pain versus a chronic pain as well, that those maps differ. They do differ. Interesting. Wow. That's cool. I love mm-hmm. this stuff. Okay. <laughs> um, okay. So the national Institute of health sciences dedicates less than 2% funding. Wow. Towards pain research and even less than that for psychological research in relation to physical manifestations of pain. What? <laughs> That's it. Yes. <laughs> That's mind blowing. <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah. And you 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 had mentioned earlier about how there's such a huge like demand for for like eight thousand dollars per per year. 
And if you're only giving 2% of that research in the psychological spectrum, which we now know is much, much, much more involved than we ever knew it was before, you basically are having an underfunding of research, much less funding for interventions that can help develop improvements from that research. So I think it's the hardest pill to swallow. It is. <laughs> um, it's terrible. Yeah. yeah. I was like, what is that about? That's ridiculous. And we all know that there's um, a socio-emotional impact with pain. Why in the heck are they not dedicating more than 2% (laughs) towards the psychological piece? It's just, it blows my mind. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So Dr. John Sarno, which Dr. John Sarno was a doctor in, in New York city. He died in 2017 at 93, whose controversial books on the psychological origins of chronic pain sold over a bazillion copies. I was a big um, believer in his work, even while he was largely ignored and by his medical peers, his work discusses chronic physical pain that can sometimes be the result of emotional tension. We can, we can feel, this is a quote from him. We can feel measurable, quantifiable pain throughout our bodies. He writes in response, not to injury, but to emotional distress. We keep diving deeper into this. Can you give your thoughts on that? Yes. Um, so kind of what we, we, we spoke about or alluded to, I can really count the number of times, probably in one hand, I have seen someone who have, who has chronic pain that has not had some emotional pain. Yeah. So there's, there's, there's not just like my experience. There's also a lot of evidence-based neuroscience to support this. Um, with the pain maps that I just talked about, for instance, um, people who have an acute pain, which is defined to be pain less than three months, usually the, the maps that activate are more tissue-based or sensory-based people who have chronic pain, their pain maps actually include the limbic system, which has the amygdala, which is an area of the brain, which attends to emotions for people that are listening, um, especially fear-based emotions. Um, What I like to say about that is it's kind of like if we could really tickle the amygdala with an electrode and you stimulate the emotional area of the brain, people with chronic pain are very likely to experience a very physical pain because their maps are that tied to the limbic system. so I think, I think that answers. Yeah. Well, that's really interesting. So, okay. So what you're saying is, is that right now, currently they do not have that, that option, right? We can't look at like the limbic system versus the physical, the physical physiology piece to this. Mm -hmm. And I, I think that's so interesting considering so much research is being done on the limbic system, the autonomic nervous system and its impact Mm -hmm. on the, the nervous system and, and pain receptors. Um, and there's nothing physically in office in a, in a clinician clinician's office to be able to detect, is this something that's related to stress? especially with those folks that are suffering from chronic, um, frequent migraines. I know I was part of those groups. Um, Mm -hmm. and oftentimes no one made the link, you know, that it was stress related or, um, limbic dysfunction, limbic dysfunction. So that's, Mm -hmm. that's really, I, I felt like Dr. John Sarno, um, and I know I've talked about this in the past, his work on folks that had the phantom pain, right? Um, they had the suicide headaches. Um, I know a lot of folks would, you know, in the past before he passed, went to him before they 
chose to go to Switzerland for the right to die clinics. And Mm -hmm. um, he started deducting and asking psychological questions, doing psychological evaluation on, on patients. And he started to see the links and his work was completely ignored. It was mind blowing. And now we're seeing like yourself and many others that are talking about this piece, which I think is so important. We just need to get better with technology, diagnostic testing in clinics to be able to deduct, is this stress related? What is this not? And obviously you're doing that on your own. You, your brilliance and your mind is deducting that as you're doing intake on patients, correct? (laughs) Yeah. Well, so I, I would say in terms of like the studies, um, or like imaging studies that for at least in my practice and from what I hear a lot with medical providers of other fields, that 80% of the subjective history, which is like what the patient is telling you, actually can guide you to your actual diagnosis. So for example, if I suspect someone having a rotator cuff tear, 80% of what they're saying, I'm like, okay, I suspect this. And then I do some testing to either confirm or deny whether or not I'm on the right track. Um, So yes, there's that. And I would say too that from what I can see, most medical providers do not have the time. They have 15 minutes with the patient and then they're out the door. So if you're looking for someone who needs to actually give you information, like what sort of information can you garner in 15 minutes? Right. So it's, it's, I think it's a, it's a poor system in that way because yeah. you 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 have people that can tell you about their stress, about their background, but they won't think to tell you unless you ask for it you're having like some, uh, live streaming analytics. Hold on. Let me pause for just a sec. Okay. Sorry, Dr. Tani, Dr. No worries. <laughs> You're fine. I'm going to fix it just a second. Mm-hmm. I don't know what was going on there. It was starting to do a lag. Sorry. Sorry about that. I was a little worried about that. We we're going to lose each other. Um, okay. That's really, really interesting. Yeah. I, I feel like, um, you know, you guys have to go old school in a lot of your assessments, especially, you know, especially for you that has the background in PT. And then you almost have to have some sort of psychological background anymore. You know, don't you feel that way? Yeah, absolutely. For to help people that are chronically dealing with pain, which is really, really, really a difficult thing on your end to have to contend with, right? Those two sides. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Okay. So Dr. Dr. Sarno maintained that most Non-traumatic instances of chronic pain, including back pain, gastrointestinal disorders, headaches, and fibromyalgia are physical manifestations of deep-seated psychological anxieties, which we talked about. I have found with my own clients, onset of pain not due to physical injuries, such as chronic headaches, fibro, ocular, and vestibular migraines, that we can usually find long-term emotional distress or what we call emotional emotional injury, um, which oftentimes what I found for a lot of my clients is there's usually about a two-year 
onset of emotional distress before the pain started. Um, I wanted to ask, what are you seeing in regards to um, cases like that in your own practice? Yes. So I would say it's actually very similar to what I see, though. I like to clarify here. I think to some extent there was an oversimplification or maybe overemphasis of the psychological processes of pain on the Dr. Sano end. Um, it's always both. It's always physical. It's always psychological. It Pain is never one without the other. Um, but to, to back, back to your original question, or is that nearly, like I would say like nine times out of 10 for my patients, if I ask them about where they hurt and I go above and beyond to ask them about what's going on in their lives, I uncover some emotional issue or distress over a perhaps previous emotional stressor. Um, so the way that I like to describe this to people um, that are listening um, for like that are my patients, also people on the call, um, I like to think about it in terms of allostatic load, which is the the idea that energy demand exceeds yeah. supply. So we know that our nervous systems are really, really, really adaptable, but when the demand of the nervous system and psychological emotional loads can greatly add to the demand, exceeds what our nervous systems can handle at the time, then our nervous system will let us know with physical symptoms. Yeah, that's interesting. So then what, what's your approach to not only managing the physical pain, but then the emotional pain? Yeah, so it's been a, a little bit of an evolution over time. Yeah. Because um, in, in my own practice, at least at the VA, um, not in my coaching business practice, um, I was a PT. So uh, in they were thinking, okay, I should stick with my physical stuff. And so I was a little bit nervous in the beginning of justifying utilizing approaches like cognitive behavioral therapy and mindfulness and hypnosis. Um, and actually, this encapsulates one of the problems that um, we've had with conventional medicine in the past is that we're so siloed, so singularly focused. Medical disciplines can very can be very specialized and territorial about what what things that they're experts on. So your defined scope of practice can make you very restricted on what you can and cannot do. Yeah. Now this has yeah. changed changed over some of the years. So for example, if within the physical therapy scope scope of practice. We now can include mental health and behavioral health interventions, as well as nutrition. Um, so it's a long way to say that my process to look at everything. Yeah. Um, I was going to ask you that being in the vets, <laughs> in the vet clinic, you are, was, so you're in, responsible for the physical therapy piece. So let's say a vet is coming to you. I'm in, you're seeing his emotional or her emotional distress, right? Mm -hmm. They're obviously maybe they're telling you that they're nutritional deficiencies or things like that. Are you allowed then to counsel them beyond the physical? You are, you are able to, to counsel them beyond the physical therapy scope, right? Absolutely. Like, so I mean, it's within the physical th therapy scope, but I'm also in the federal, federal site too. So we also have more Lucy practices. We don't have to strictly adhere to our state scope of practice. Um, but that being said, it is within the PT scope of practice. It was actually updated in the past um, past couple of years that nutrition, mental health, and behavioral practices are within our scope. And as long as we have the training and the ability to to do what we're doing, um, it should should be and and it's within like our line of like we're helping them get better from pain. Um, it's absolutely something that we can add on to our practice. So then if you are a physical therapist, not in the vet clinic, right. Mm -hmm. And you're, you're dealing with clients coming in is it, 
are you, your hands tied per state that, I mean, you can't, oh, okay. I see. So, um, so you would, if somebody came into your office, not as a vet, right. And they wanted physical therapy, you would not be able to counsel them on emotional health or nutritional health, right. Or you, you could, can. okay. You can, you can. So okay. it, like, like nationally, our scope of practice has changed. Okay. There's still a state scope of practice. So let's say nutrition, there are certain states that will say, Hey, um, you can recommend supplements and other ones. I'll say no, or there'll, there'll be no language around it. So if you do it, there's nothing that like is protecting you one way or another. So that's just something you have to pay attention Mm -hmm. to. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Yeah. I know insurance becomes kind of sticky. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right, yes. right. Yes. Oh, oh, interesting. Um, okay. Can you share with our followers some suggestions on or best approaches to natural help help with reducing pain while healing? Yes. So on the natural end of approaches for the more physical approaches, I'm just gonna throw out physical therapy because <laughs> okay, good. Yes, I love but, it. Do it. <laughs> but for chronic for chronic pain, physical therapy, traditional approaches. Um, may not always be helpful because what we know is that the nervous system is sensitized. So you can't go through your standard stretching and strengthening piece and be like, okay, here you go. Um, So if someone really wanted to increase movement and see pain reduction in physical therapy, it is really important to make sure there's what they call a graded exposure approach. So let's say you had a very specific chronic pain in the shoulder or the back. Um, Physical therapy interventions can be just how can I get this person moving, like walking? Um, breathing exercises can be very effective and simple um, to learn to help start starting to wind down the, the, the nervous system. So um, PT is helpful. You want to make sure that whoever you're seeing um, does have that in mind because um, that, that training really makes a difference from, for the people that I see. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. For the, for the emotionally based therapies or psychologically based um, I do advocate um, for cognitive behavioral therapy and acceptance commitment therapy. They have very good evidence behind them. I also am a big fan of mindfulness. And the reason for this is that um, I find a lot of people do need to heal and work on trauma work, which can go all the way back to childhood. And with mindfulness, I, I see it as more of a skill set where you develop kind of like an observing muscle. Yeah, yeah. I describe it like growing an emotional hazmat suit (laughs) so that when you're observing more or like going through more traumatic situations, you can kind of look at those things without freaking out your nervous system. And if you do mindfulness, hmm? I'm sorry, can you go back real quick to accept and you say accept and is it uh, acceptance commitment therapy? What is that? Explain that a little bit to me. So acceptance commitment. Oh, so let's, let me make the distinction. Cognitive behavioral therapy is often about changing and reframing thoughts and beliefs. Right now, oftentimes people can have a hard time shifting their thoughts and beliefs with things like pain and mental health stuff. So the acceptance commitment therapy has been another type of psychological therapy, wherein you don't have to change what you're actually thinking you're, you're more trying to be like, okay, I see this as a, a thought and this as a thought, and this as a belief. And you're allowing all those pieces to occur without feeling like you're shuttled into like, I have to do it this way. Kind of right. Thing. Right. Yeah. I like that. That's interesting because I, I would think that would be applicable and you could tell me otherwise, but, um, for a person that may have, you know, 
lost a leg or I, I have a family member he just passed um, who lived with he was in um, he was in the military and he lost a part of his leg and throughout time they he had massive phantom pain he was on a ton of um, different types of drugs that were really really bad I mean really intense mm-hmm. um, and and I, I I kept thinking his entire life there was never a piece of acceptance around this right so mm-hmm. do you feel like those that type of therapy is helpful for somebody who might absolutely have to live with long-term chronic pain. Oh, absolutely. I would, I actually would probably elevate ACT over CBT. And here's, here's a good um, metaphor for why Um, most people, when they have these incredibly debilitating symptoms or just symptoms, period, they're doing so much fixing and trying to fight that thing. Um, In ACT, a common metaphor that we have is if you imagine someone like um, drowning in quicksand, right? Most people's instinct in quicksand is they are trying to fight the quicksand, which makes them drown even faster. So there's the resistance itself is actually making you sink further still. But if you really wanted to work with quicksand and survive or thrive, you actually stop, stop resisting and you kind of treat it almost like floating on water where you move a little less and you're almost trying to make as much point of contact with your body as possible. And that quicksand helps you float. Same thing with pain, same thing with a lot of symptoms is that people are fighting so hard. I want, uh, they spend all their energy on that. And that actually makes them drown even faster. So there's a huge piece about allowing and surrendering, um, like, or truly surrendering, not just like, okay, I'm gonna see if this works because your subconscious brain knows. Um, That really helps with um, bringing people back out of like the pit of like spiraling that they might be in. Yes. Yeah. I think that's, I I wanted to go deeper. I was like, that sounds really interesting. I'm I'm curious to know your thoughts on that. Um, The other piece too, I wanted to expound on is um, the PTSD piece and the mindfulness piece. Now I know for some folks, sexual survivors, um, I've seen this in my practice. I've seen this with uh, chronic illness folks. Um, A lot of times they'll have, you know, uh, kidney pain, different bladder dysfunction, things like that. And, um, I know a a person specifically who's dealt with that. And then only later to find out that there was traumatic links to sexual assault from when, when this person was eight, nine years old. Mm -hmm. Um, it's really fascinating how much pain specialists miss. And I mean, you are an exception to the rule. Dr. Cross, really honestly, and to be able to have all of these psychological therapy pieces in your bag to be able to pull out, depending upon the patient, right, is pretty freaking phenomenal. Um, I love, I'm I'm a certified mindfulness instructor, and I do think mindfulness is really helpful. I've seen it really helpful for folks that kind of pain jumps around a lot, and mm-hmm. then they get in their head a lot, right? So then they hyper-focus, they got a little OCD action happening, and then they hyper-focus in on, oh, where's the pain going now, right? So mm-hmm. that mindfulness strategy is really, really instrumental. Are you, Do you see that also in your practice? Oh, absolutely. Oh, cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think it's, it's just, I think people like yourself, you're so talented. Number one, you have the specialty in to be able to help people that are chronically in pain and they're suffering, but you also are so knowledgeable in the right, the wide variety of therapies because no person receives therapies the same, right? 
but mm-hmm. you have that expertise to be able to say, Hey, this person is dealing with, obviously we need to get you know, lost a leg, lost a limb is going to live with chronic illness. We need to use this type of therapy to see if this will help, you know, ACT therapy to help this person really emotionally, um, better deal and handle the pain. So I think that's really powerful. And I just wanted to stress that. And for those folks listening in, um, you want somebody like Dr. Cross because they have, they, they have so many different tools, right? And no person that you address is going to be the same. So it's a very individualistic approach. Mm -hmm. I'm assuming. I can't. <laughs> so, it can be. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. I want to go into this really amazing post that you did on Instagram, which I thought was really cool. Oh, I just, I'm sorry. I skipped a question. Re- I want to answer, have you answer this question. Recommendations okay. on, on alternatives to pain meds that you have found to help ease symptoms. Cause I, sorry, I didn't mean to skip over that. I oh, oh, no, no, no. That's answer fine. that question. I think that's really important. Um, so go to recommendations on the more nutritional alternative end are things like magnesium, CoQ10, um, turmeric, root, and ginger. Um, but if we're talking outside of nutritional stuff, I do find that a lot of my patients find symptom reduction with things like acupuncture, osteopathic manipulative therapy, and soft tissue work like massage. Um, I, I also heavily emphasize this because I know people are very interested in like the symptom management piece. It is so, so, so important to have active therapies, which which was something that you're personally working on. You're emphasizing it and participating in it versus having a passive therapy where something is being done to you. That's you. And Got you. primarily because the literature on pain does show that empowering people to have agency in their healing is huge for long-term changes. Absolutely. That's so good. That was so good. Okay. I want to talk about your Instagram post. So, um, for those of you guys that, that don't follow Dr. Cross, you're missing it. So you're going to want to go to Instagram and follow her at doctor. Is it Dr. Dot Tawny dot cross. Okay. With a K with a K. Okay. So Dr. Dot Tawny T A W N Y dot capital K R O S S on Instagram. She posts some really amazing things and she does these wonderful little lives, which I absolutely love to tune into. Um, but I do want to target a post that she did not too long ago, which I love. I was like, that's so cool. Um, so it's talking about, and I, the reason why I loved it is because I, in my self-healing work that I do with clients and in my podcast, I really, really talk a lot about different brain types and what I just stressed on everybody's different and how they learn how to heal, how they process emotions. It's all so different. And I never found for my own healing that a one size fits all worked for me. I mean, cause I always felt like I was a little, I had sensory disorder issues. Um, I had different ways of learning on how to heal my body. Um, I've always was a visual kinesthetic learner. So I I felt like we were kind of like on the same page here in regards to pain management style. So if you guys don't see that post, I'll post it on my page because I think it's really, really great, but I want to break it down. So let's first talk a little bit about what is pain management styles. I love it. (laughs) So pain management styles is basically in short, how people deal with pain. There's like, there's, I have about 
Oh gosh, I can't even remember how many that. Six, maybe five or six, six, six different categories. Yeah, <laughs> you do. Six different categories. So cool. Um, and everybody does have a combination of different management styles, but there's usually one type that might show up more than another. Okay, very cool. Let's start with the first one. All right, okay. let's start with the first one because I love it. The pusher. The pusher. <laughs> what yes. is the pusher, and what is the effect from that type of management style? It is that person that pushes through their pain to get through their every day. Yeah. I do see that a lot of people here are overachievers. They're the perfectionists, the go-getters, the ones that hate showing weakness. And there's a very strong, no pain, no gain mentality that has been learned. And as a part of not wanting to show weakness or muscling through the pain, they will end up hiding what they're actually feeling from other people. So there, there might be, be a realization that they are hiding, like not really telling people about their pain, but they also at the same time feel disconnected and misunderstood by others. So there's like this level of like, okay, like I'm hiding this, but I feel like I want to be mis- be understood. And there's that gap that's there. Yeah. And with the pushing pe- practice, um, there's a lot of boom and bust cycles where they, they'll do a lot when they feel good and then they'll pay for it later. And then it continues to go rebound. There's like a, um, very continuous cycle and a growing fear that over time, um, that things will get worse if they don't, if they can't, um, where they feel like they can't push any longer. Yeah. That's interesting. Like the fear of one day becoming disabled. Yeah. That yeah. that's so interesting. Thank you. Okay. So the next one is the avoider. <laughs> Just say that the avoider. Yes. yes. Okay. What's the effect of that? Um, the avoider is someone that's very fear driven on the physical end and strives to, uh, not necessarily the physical end, but for a lot of ends, um, but they stay away from any activity event or trigger that causes their pain. Um, there's a very strong belief that the pain does mean something is physically wrong and that they're perhaps damaging the tissues further when they feel their pain. So um, a lot of catastrophizing thought behavior. And when fear is really this prominent, there really is an underdoing of life activities so like people feel like they're like a shadow of their former selves like a shell of like they're living um yeah it's been pretty reduced to to what they remember being I, I hate to say this, but that resonated with me so much in the chronic illness world, chronic illness. And I'm going to generalize this. Okay. So let's just bear with me on that. Um, I found for my own clients, I've found from being in the world that a lot of folks, the adaptation piece of, you know, pushing yourself, um, you know, a lot of folks stay within a certain fine line. They're sensitive, they're delicate, and there's a lot of fear about that. And then they wrap their identity in it. So there, I always say there's a payoff to being delicate, being sensitive. It does. Mm-hmm. It means that there's not a failure. There's not, you know, they're not going to fail at anything. They're not going to be, you know, um, they're not going to be worse off than what they are right now. So I found that one really, really glaring for me in the chronic illness world. Yeah. Um, yeah. The next one is the ignore, the ignore her. I can't even say it. Ignore. 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 Can you, can you expound on that? Yeah. So there's a little bit of pushing mentality in, in the ignorer as well, but it's, this one's more about trying to distract from pain. They're focusing on anything they can, but the pain itself 
Um, they might have heard things like, hey, pain is in the brain. And maybe they're taking things more on the end of it um, to the extreme of brain retraining. Um, so they might have this subconscious idea that pain's not real or it's imagined. Um, and so the ignoring and distraction from pain can be helpful because when you're not focused on pain, it helps you get through the day. But at the end of the night, when they're trying to sleep, there's like nothing that to distract them from their pain. And it usually becomes a lot harder for them to deal with then. Yeah. It's loud. It's screaming mm -hmm. at you at night when it's silent and it's dark and it's yeah. And you're alone. And then all of a sudden it's there. It's like a yep. big, ugly, dirty shadow in the corner. It's yeah. so true. I do want to, I do want to expound on just one thing that you said when you said brain retraining. So one of the things that I found in my own chronic illness journey was that I did different programs to help. Um, you know, my journey was such as, Oh, I started getting symptoms. I go to the, through the Western process, the Western medication process, and then get injured. It's just a cycle, right? So you're on this mm -hmm. hamster wheel of nowhere. And then eventually you hit your wall and then eventually you see, oh gosh, that, you know, this is becoming my life. I am chronic illness and who mm -hmm. am I outside of that? And then you start to see the, you know, you, you kind of pull back and you start to see the chronic condition stress response that's been enacted. Right. Mm -hmm. And, um, and so at that point, when I was in the chronic illness type world and really deeply entrenched in it. Um, there were little programs popping up, brain retraining, neuroplasticity programs. So I tried them. Right. And one of the things that was helpful about that is it got me to see, it got me to see that, um, there's more to than just the symptoms. There's, there's more to this piece of the puzzle that that's involved and why I'm on this hamster wheel, why I'm, why I'm stuck, which was, um, my stress response, which was my fear, which was PTSD was all those pieces. Right. Mm -hmm. But one of the things that I found, and I know we talked about this privately was, is there culture that was created around, well, all you need is brain retraining. Yeah. And then when I was doing it for a couple of years exclusively, cause I kind of go all the wall, you know, I'm kind of like all in or not in at all. Right. Yeah. And so, um, at that point I was all in brain, re brain retraining, brain rewiring. And I found mm -hmm. for myself that, um, you know, one of the things that were the culture that was being brought up was just ignore your symptoms. They're, they're called, um, pops or they're called, uh, you know, there's signaling factors or they're, you ignore them. They're just, they're just something that's coming, conjuring up in your mind. Well, the more I ignore them, the louder they were. And then I realized, oh gosh, I have gut health issues. Yeah. <laughs> I've got actual things that needs to be addressed. And I thought, mm -hmm. wow, I really missed a couple years of actually trying to heal my gut, help my body heal, help my, the damage from all the um, medications that I was on. Cause I did actually have medication injury. And, um, that takes some things, additional things that you need to do that I, I kind of fell into that. Well, just ignore the symptom, ignore the, the chronic diarrhea, ignore the constipation, all those things. Right. Because my brain is so powerful that it's going to override it. <laughs> and then I later learned two and a half years later that I still had the same things that still needed to be addressed. And yep. my brain wasn't that powerful. <laughs> it was, but it wasn't, there were still other pieces of the puzzle. And I did fall into that category. And when we talked, I thought, oh gosh, you kind of need all of these other pieces. You do need PT work. You do because we, we oftentimes when we get sick, we, we go into subluxation type posing and, and then our, our vertebrae changes. And I found all those pieces. Um, and I started to work on them slowly and, um, I started to see shifts and mm -hmm. I really, 
I really found the ignore really powerful, just applied to me. So, um, that, that was a a really interesting thing. When I read your post, I was like, oh, that's me. That was me for almost two and a half years. I ignored. So, um, but then I learned, I'm like, oh, well, yeah, I'm not, my brain is not that it's powerful, but my body is also very powerful. So it kind of takes everything in tandem to kind of get everything back online. So I thought that was a really good, um, pain management style. So thank you. (laughs) All right. Let's go into the manager. What is the manager? So the manager is spending about 50% or more of their week looking for short-term ways to fix or reduce their pain. They're running around from appointment to appointment, like going to Assad, Reiki, Cairo, or anything. It's just about finding like quick ways to maximize their, um, to, to start to address their short-term fixes. Yeah. Um, but over time, usually what these people will find is that treatments work less and less. Um, there's a growing fear that they're probably running low on options and they just might be asking themselves things like, what else haven't I tried? And it's, it's, it's this constant search for like a silver bullet solution. Yeah. And that also sounds like codependency. So we're being, becoming codependent on everything outside of ourselves to be able to heal. So I can't move. I need to go to a, um, you know, a person to move me or whatever. And I'm, I'm assuming on your end. I I mean, I saw that as well in the chronic illness with dependency on, um, juicing and, you know, having the right supplements. I can't function without the right supplements. And then we become codependent. That's in, that is very interesting and absolutely applicable to pain, which, and I know you wrote down like not having their tens unit, which I know some people, if they don't, they go on vacation, they panic if they don't have their tens unit. And I thought that was really interesting. So, um, okay, cool. What's the the next one is the think positiver. I know a few of those. (laughs) I love it. There's a little bit of like a toxic positivity thing around this. Like, let me just have a positive mindset and be pleasant all the time. And, you know, it's a very oftentimes not that they intentionally do it, but like very superficial, like positivity, because the the real thing of it is they're still worried about their pain. Their thoughts and emotions about pain itself is um, there's something wrong. They're frustrated that things aren't changing. And um, just having like this, like, okay, I'll just be a positive person um, isn't going to take them anywhere. And sometimes I feel like what I see is that people have like, I'm a good person. I'm a good, positive person. Why isn't this working? Am I being punished kind of thing? Yeah. Yeah. I, so I don't, I, I call it the Pollyanna syndrome. <laughs> so like if that. we're, if we're, poly, if, if anybody's ever watched the the movie Pollyanna from, I think like the 1960s, um, she was always positive. We have to think of positive thoughts. And, um, and I always felt like sometimes, um, folks that had the Pollyanna syndrome, they're actually overwriting their own yeah. emotional needs. So I think right. that's really, really important. Thank you for pointing that out. And I think the last one is the mindful pain explorer. Let's dive into that one. (laughs) Yeah. So this is the one that I hope everybody aspires to. And it it really goes down to truly taking the time to listen to their bodies beyond pain. Like for your case, listening to your gut, listening to like the symptoms that your your body's producing, because it's not just about trying to like, okay, maybe pretend the pain is not there. You're able to have a very deep connection. Um, They call it interoception, body listening. Yes. Um, So you're able to feel both pleasant and unpleasant sensations and be able to sense like what is something that you really have to pay attention to and what is just like, okay, my nervous system is kind of being reactive. Um, When people are in this space, they 
sense pain and they don't have a lot of fear associated with it. They're able to explore it with curiosity. Um, they trust their bodies. They feel safe in their bodies. Um, and their, their lives are not pain driven. They're guided by what they want to do versus being dependent on like, okay, what's the pain telling me today? Or like, what's what, 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 what I have to depend on something else essentially. Yeah. I love that. Okay. So guys, let's get to the mindfulness pain explorer. That's the type you want to be in. I love it. Thank you so much. It's such a good, it's such a good graphic. I, I, I'm not kidding you. It needs to be shared over and over again. All right. So let's get deeper into um, a kind of like, okay, so let's discuss what you provide for patients if they choose to work with you. Yeah. So I do one-on-one coaching outside of my practice at the VA. Um, it's a also a group coaching program I have as well. Um, everything is done virtually. Um, I like to break it down into three main pillars I focus on um, to essentially free themselves from a very pain-driven life. One is that mindful pain explorer, helping people really get connected to their body. Um, two, I do like to dive into the root causes of why their nervous system got sensitized in the first place. Um, and then three is working on expanding their life, right? So if you whittle down and want to expand it again, uh, we want to decrease fear and help you actually have like the life that you want versus like being in this, this fear of symptom appearing again. I love that. Okay. So where would they go to sign up? So, um, I like to have people, um, reach out to me via my website or, um, Instagram, um, scheduling is, scheduling is actually really, really easy. You just message me and I, um, want to check in to make sure that you're a good fit for my program. Cause I don't feel like everybody necessarily understands exactly what I do until we chat. So, yeah. um, having a conversation is really the first step. And then, um, once we get coordinated, we schedule a, a chat and get, I send out a zoom link. Wonderful. Okay. So if you guys want to work with Dr. Cross, I'm just going to throw out the website, but the website description and all of her Facebook and IG handles. So where do you normally get messaging from? Is it on your social media pages? Um, I usually get it from IG, so social media. And then I don't usually get a lot of Facebook messages. Uh, most of the, the people I see are on Instagram. Um, and sometimes I get the occasional email from my website. Awesome. Okay. So here's the website guys. It's www.dr tawnycross.com. Did I say that right? Mm -hmm. Perfect. And then if you want to follow her on Instagram, it's at dr.tawny.cross. So you guys get, you know, connect with her and then obviously go to her website and learn about more about her services. Now let's go into, you have any upcoming workshops, new books, anything happening in the near future? Yes. Next week on Thursday, um, February 16th at five o'clock PM EST. I do have a pain training workshop. Again, sign up is simple. You just message me, um, your email address, and I will send the workshop link right over. Okay. So tell us what the pain training workshop is. <laughs> Cause oh. I want to know. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I generally focus on, um, having body connection be the first piece. Cause I think that's the one that most people are missing. They, they feel something, they freak out and understanding how to be able to do that better to, so that you can start to work on the pieces of the puzzle to heal, um, is a big teaching piece. Yeah, that's awesome. You guys. Okay. I'm going to reiterate that. 
So she has a pain training workshop next week, which is Thursday, February 16th at 5 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. So sign up is simple. You would just need to go to her website or you can email her. It's tawny at drtawnycross.com, but you can find all that information on her website. Okay, I have the last three questions of my podcast. I know I've kept you for so long. I found this whole conversation very fascinating. All right, first and foremost, what inspires you with the work that you do? Um. So I would say just very naturally, I think since a kid, I was like, I want to be a healer. And I remember growing up, if I had a superpower, it'd be really cool if it was like healing. Um, though I, I will say when with chronic pain, I often see it's not me healing people, it's people healing themselves. Yeah, so it's kind of yeah. a backwards kind of thing. Um, so um, there's that. And it's cheesy to say maybe, but there really is a thrill in seeing people get better and turn their life around. So I think oh. that should be everybody's jam. <laughs> totally. Totally. You're not only seeing it physically, but you're seeing it emotionally, which yeah. is amazing. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Okay. So what do you hope to see yourself doing in the next five to 10 years? So business level wise, I, um, I currently, my coaching practice is, is for profit, but I do want to eventually get involved with, with a nonprofit program, particularly because of the statistics you mentioned with people um, who have trouble really paying for their care. Um, and then on a personal level, I just want to make more space and time to get into like writing fiction novels and heavier weightlifting and then being more hands-on with my kids day to day because they're growing up and, you know, I just want to be able to see how they explore that interest and see where that takes them. Yeah. Enjoy every moment you deserve yeah. it. So, okay. What hope rope message would you, you like to give to people who are struggling with their health today, specifically with pain? Yes. So there's been a lot of misinformation in the past that has led to people to despair and that chronic pain is forever pain, which we know that's not true. Um, we know that pain is complex. It does take a more holistic approach than what people have been doing in the past. But we know for certain that um, with the research and neuroplasticity that chronic pain can improve dramatically and for some can be cured. Yeah. Thank you for that. That's huge. That's a big yeah. hope rope message. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you so much. It really has been so much fun to get to know you and connect with you. I have, you're just, you're, I mean, you're like a, a triple double threat <laughs> out there <laughs> and you. you are really killing it. A lot of people appreciate all the information you put on Instagram. You have a growing audience. Um, and I mean, you seem to be so outside the box. And I think that's what we need anymore with practitioners, especially with chronic pain, which is such a delicate topic. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. You're welcome. Well, if you guys want to connect with uh, Dr. Cross, you guys can connect with her on social media platforms, such as Instagram and she's on Facebook, but Instagram is where you're going to get all the great information and the marketing stuff that we talked about today with the six different pain management styles. So go check it out. Um, you can also connect with her through her website at www.drtawnycross.com. Thank you, you guys. And thank you, Dr. Cross. I really appreciate it. Thank you. A special thank you to our guest expert, Dr. Tawny Cross of www.drtawnycross.com. You can find her links in the description of this episode. If you like what you heard, please hit the subscribe button and you'll be notified of future episodes. 
follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube, or connect with us through our website at www.flipinshift.com. Again, www.flipinshift.com.